Hello, fellow griever. You have found The Leftover Pieces, Suicide Lost Conversations, and I am Melissa, your podcast host. I am with you on this journey because my 21-year-old son, Alex, died by suicide on August 7th of 2016. And since starting this podcast in 2020, in 2021, I felt a nudge to take the leftover pieces further and have now opened an online support community as well. There, I lead parents who have lost a child by suicide from survival toward hope and into healing. The website is also a resource hub, a connecting point, if you will, for all survivors of suicide loss. You can find me there on theleftoverpieces.com. I am always open to suggestions for episode topics and welcome referrals if you know someone I should have a conversation with here on the podcast. So now I invite you to join me for real conversations, candid talk on hard topics surrounding the loss of loved ones by suicide. I talk to other loss survivors, mental health experts, advocates, and on alternate weeks, I offer my own thoughts. Here, every week, we explore the questions that haunt us, seek the courage to uncover the healing tools within us, and offer the comfort of a community that we all need so very much. It's true that our hearts and lives have been shattered, but come along with me, and together, let's choose to find meaning and even happiness amid the leftover pieces before us. Welcome. Hello, fellow grievers. Today, you have reached Season 3, Episode 16 of the Leftover Pieces Suicide Loss Conversations podcast, and I'm Melissa, your host. Today, it's my honor to share with you a recent conversation I had with a lovely lady named Lynn Brooks Lewis. Lynn is proud to be a distinguished Toastmaster and is the founder of Tea Time Chats with Lynn and is from Grief to Gratitude certified as a grief coach. Tea Time Chats with Lynn is a non-clinical, informal space for adult women grieving the death of a loved one who find themselves feeling alone and stuck in their grief to connect with other women who have similar experiences. As a From Grief to Gratitude certified coach, Lynn works with adult women who are grieving the death of a loved one. She encourages and guides them to move from pain to peace, heartbreak to happiness, and grief to gratitude at their own pace in a one-on-one private setting. She offers talks centered around grief and self-love. After her son Daniel's death, In August of 2019, Lynn made the choice not to be consumed by the suicide loss of her son. As a part of her healing process, as a part of her healing process, and to stay true to the choice, in addition to encouraging and inspiring other women with similar experiences, Lynn readily shares her grief story. In sharing her story, which she calls, I Choose to Live, 
She talks about the positive impact self-love has on how she manages this grief and how she strives daily to move forward, living an impactful and meaningful life. There are a few things that Lynn finds more rewarding than joining a friend, colleague, or someone she just met for a cup of tea and a chat. She never imagined those chats would include her own grief story because of her son's tragic death. Lynn has volunteered with several nonprofit organizations for more than 20 years to include the former Susan G. Komen Central VA affiliate, the Reed Center, and Circles RVA, where she currently serves as an ally and Full Circle Grief Center as a support group volunteer. She resides in Richmond, Virginia with her husband, Keith. Today, you will hear Lynn and I talk about exactly how the death of her son, Daniel, impacted and changed her life path. We talk about marriage and how her and her husband, Keith, handle it. We talk about her acronym, SHARE, and what it means and how she uses it to coach others. We talk about what coaching with Lynn might look like. But we also talk about her hopes and goals for the future. Lynn and I both believe that through sharing stories, we can become someone else's support. It's my honor today to welcome Lynn. Hi, welcome, Lynn. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Melissa. I am glad to be here. Yeah, well, it's my honor. And I would like to start off today the way I do all of my episodes and ask you to start by sharing your lost story and your words, whatever that looks like to you with my listeners. Sure, gladly. My lost story is that of my son, whose name is Daniel. Daniel left us on August 4th, 2019. And the interesting part of my story is that actually it started on July 29th. Daniel did not show up for his shift at work. He was a um, firefighter, a professional firefighter. He did not show up for his shift, which was very unusual for him. That was on a Monday. And his his crew called my husband to let them know that they had not heard from him. And again, that was very unusual. That From that point forward, we did not know where he was. We did not hear from him. We thought the, actually the detectives thought that they had pinged him in um, Raleigh, North Carolina. And then it was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. But we really had no idea. No one heard from Daniel. He did not respond to phone calls or text messages or emails or cash app, nothing. And from Monday, July 29th, all the way until the night of Sunday, August 4th, we had no idea where Daniel was. That night of August 4th, around 10 p.m. was when the authorities showed up at our home to tell us that his body had been found in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that was the worst day of my life. 
still to this day, the worst day of my life. The shock. I remember asking the officer, are you sure? Are you sure? And those who've heard me share my story before know that I always say it must have been 10 times that I said to this gentleman, are you sure? I have to know for sure before I call anybody, before I tell anyone this. And after a few minutes of conversation, I was I was sure that it was him from his tattoos, from the identification they found with him. It, it was him. And, but that did not help the shock of hearing those words. Yeah, I completely understand. I, those of us that were not, you know, physically present to, to see our loved one when we were told, and I have a whole separate heartbreak for the people that do that are there and and see it. Right. So there isn't any way to say that there's a better way. There's no better way, but it is very, it will, the whole thing's surreal, but I remember when I was told, and Alex was two and a half hours away at college, so I hadn't even been told by an authority. I had been told by my son who got a phone call from friends because the police were there with you know with Alex's body and things, but I didn't speak to anybody official until we were in the car on the way, and they tried to tell us that we didn't need to come, Lynn. They said, there's no reason for you to come, and I remember thinking to myself, what do you mean? There's no reason to come. My son is there. And the part of this that lends to what you were saying is that somewhere in my shocked mind, I think I was thinking this isn't possibly a mistake. If I don't lay my eyes on him, I'm not sure I believe it because it's unbelievable, you know? And you want to think, okay, that's been a mistake or it's, they've got the wrong person or, I mean, all the things go through your head, even if they're not logical, his ID was found by somebody else and it's not him. They're wrong. I mean, it's a fraternity. He's at college. This isn't correct. And, you know, the coroner was so tactless and horrible that he said the words to me. I don't know why you're coming. Your son's body is zipped and locked in a black bag. There's nothing for you to see, ma'am. And I just, I went. Yeah. I went, what? Because to even say that out loud to a mother just shows, I don't know what it shows. It shows a whole lot of things about somebody. <laughs> and, you know, cause there's a way to tell somebody that you can't let them view the body. That's in a much more tactful way that also acknowledges that they need to come because of the parent and that you'll take care of them emotionally when they're there. Instead of right. just telling me not to come and to say it in that manner. But I didn't realize until we were probably there that a lot of what I needed to do for me was confirmed by seeing something, by seeing Mm -hmm. his room, by being in the presence of his friends that had been there by, we had to get his dog. I mean, there were things. Mm -hmm. So it was like, it's this, we are in complete shock and denial. I, I spoke to somebody recently who said, you know, she was the the sister. And she said, when the parents called her to say her brother was gone, that their son had died. She just kept saying, this isn't funny. This isn't funny. Mm -hmm. This isn't a funny joke. Like Mm -hmm. she said what you did. She said, I must have said it 10 or 20 times. Like, this isn't funny. This isn't a funny joke. And of course, her parents wouldn't call and make that joke. 
And her parents had sent friends of the family over to be with her before they even called her. So they had friends of the family there and, and she was still saying, this isn't a funny joke. Well, logic tells you that she knows they're not joking, but she kept saying it anyway. Cause so, you want it to be, you, so you know it, but you want it to be a joke or something, but it wasn't. And my son was five hours away and it's 10 o'clock at night. And he didn't and live in Charlotte, right? He was found in a city no, that he didn't live in. So correct. that's also making your brain go bonkers. And, yeah. and it was, wow. wow. Was it told but, to you from the beginning, if I can ask you, did they tell you from the beginning that he died by suicide? Or did they not know the cause of death at the beginning? In the beginning, because I even said that to the detective that was talking, standing in my kitchen. And I said to him, why would he kill himself? And he said, we don't know that. Let that be determined. We don't know that. Which at the time they knew, but didn't, they couldn't say a hundred percent sure. And so we weren't sure, but we were sure. We, we knew all of the things that pointed toward I mean, there was no forced entry. He was in a hotel room. There was no forced entry. His ID was there. Cash money was there. His ATM card was there. His passport was there. There was nothing that pointed to anything otherwise. And, but. So they yeah, did say to you, we found him and it appears to be an apparent suicide Yes, from the beginning. Yes. And then they later, of course, confirmed that it was. I, I just, if you take us back a little bit to, to Daniel and who Daniel was, and he was 30 years old and he was a firefighter. So I'm interested to know from you if this was completely out of left field, if Daniel had been struggling, if there was anything that, that even there's no way to say we're prepared for this, but you know what I'm asking as another mother that lives in this world, you know what I'm asking? Was this something you had any indication of? It was totally, this incident was a total surprise. Now, early on, as I've played my tapes back over and over, over many hours since then, there was a time I remember when he was away in college for a few years. And I remember him calling me one day and saying, Ma, I haven't been out of my room for a week. I didn't accredit that to him being, and so this would have been when he was maybe 20. Yeah, because he went to college at 18. So this was when he was 19 or 20. I'm thinking, okay, he doesn't want to be here. He doesn't, he does, he never really liked school. But I did not think it was anything to this degree that he was depressed or mentally ill. And I'm still not sure that he was. What I do know is that about six months prior to his death, he had gotten himself into a little situation that he was dealing with and having to go to court about. And but. He was handling that. He had gotten his attorney. He had the money. So it was not a money issue. And it did not appear that he was going to lose his job. But I think that had something to do with it was too much for him to handle. So 
And I also think that there was something going on that he suppressed, that he hid from everyone. No one knew that this was coming. We didn't see this coming. I remember even when he was younger and I guess it was middle school, late elementary school, we thought that he was, he was having some problems in school. So the teachers, the counselors, like Daniel is just bored. He's acting out. He has ADHD, different things like this. But as I've looked back over his life, I'm now wondering, was there something going on that he was acting out in this way? He was never a violent child and that he fought, you know, other children. He never fought us. He never was that um, child that said mean things to his parents. None of that. Whatever he had on his mind, he suppressed it. He kept it to himself. He did like drinking alcohol, which is what got him into the situation he was dealing with. But to answer the question, did we see it coming? No, because from all appearance, he was in a good spot. He loved his job. He enjoyed the, t- the unit that he was working with. He was excited about learning more uh, about the city he was in, which was his home city. So none of this was suspected. It was a total shock. To hear you say that, I have a situation similar to that, and everybody has different such situations. I have talked to a lot of people in the last year and a half since I've been doing the podcast, and there are definitely people that have had some forewarning, even children that have maybe had previous suicide attempts doesn't make the loss any easier, but they have, they have the understanding of something to fall back on that their child was really struggling. And again, I don't think there's any matter of something being easier. It's just a matter of it being different. You know, we all have different things to bear because those of us that didn't have any forewarning and like you, I also have now looked back and hindsight, unfortunately, is much closer to 2020 than we wish it was. (laughs) And so there are definitely things that I too have seen that I think to myself, which is part of where I'm going to go with this in a minute. But, you know, I had all of the questions too, because other than the last six months of Alex's life, he was kind of in a pickle as well of his own making. Probably, I mean, I could safely say that as a 21-year-old college student, two years into college, living in a fraternity, even though it wasn't a a legal issue with alcohol, it was alcohol related because that's what happens when you get behind the eight ball in a fraternity and you're partying Mm -hmm. too much and all of that. But he had let his grades go. He had graduated from high school and with a, a baccalaureate degree, which was an international degree. He went to a rigorous college academically. And even though he knew how to do that, he also didn't really like school. So having graduated with that diploma that took so much work to get and then going into a rigorous college, I kind of think he was just like over it. So he he let the grades slide a little bit. And that last semester he was on academic probation. Mm -hmm. They didn't call it that. They had him on a recovery program so that he wouldn't go on academic probation. 
And he was doing fine. He was getting out of that. He had broken up with a girlfriend that he was very serious with in January. He died on August 7th. So that that spring semester was his tough semester. And But as mom, I thought he's 21 years old. He's gotten himself kind of behind the eight ball in some things. Life is a little stressful right now. We were talking about it. It wasn't like he wasn't telling us. Now, just like you, I feel like there's an awful lot he wasn't letting anybody know. Right. Because he wasn't letting anybody know the depth of how much he was suffering through some of these things. Because he was also simultaneously dealing with all of these things, including some internal struggles with within the fraternity. Because... Mm. I used to be more hesitant in saying this. Now I just say it out loud. My son's moral compass was better than a lot of his fraternity members. And that's why he was going head to head with a lot of them. Okay. And I know this because of the conversations we had. And I used to have to say, Alex, I understand what you're saying, but everybody isn't as good as you are. I mean, he just had a good heart. He was just a mm-hmm. good person. And he liked to have a good time and cut it up as much as the other guy. And he was the life of the party and all those things. But at the end of the day, he was good to his core. He was a good person. And that was also his undoing a little bit. And there's a common thread I see when I talk to moms with similar personality where they, you know, tend to hold a lot of things in and they just say, hey, I'm fine. And I mean, because Alex even did that when I tried to talk to him when he said, I have gone to the counseling center, mom, but don't worry. I'm just doing it so that I can kind of deal with some of these feelings. There's a lot going on. And, you know, I had done the things and said, are you sure you're okay? And do you need to come home and please let me know everything's, you know, how it's going. And, but I just didn't have any idea the amount of stuff he wasn't telling us as far as what he was internalizing, which, you know, brings to mind what we talk about so much in this world after we've lost someone is especially with young men. Yes. How hard it is for them to think that they can tell their tough firefighter colleagues or their their tough fraternity brothers or their dads or their moms that they're truly not doing well to the point that I'm thinking of taking my life. Right. And all of this around them, the last thing we're going to say to someone, at least we that's how we were that's how we thought before is I know you're struggling. Is this anything to the extreme where you thought of taking your life? Have you thought about suicide? Because what we have found is that if we do that, there's this old school of thought, and sometimes schools still do this, and it's not the right thing to do, that by talking about it, we somehow perpetuate the idea and make the person more likely. What they have found over and over again, especially by talking to people that are suicidal, is that they need to know that even if they're suicidal, because in their mind, that's the worst you could be, right? When you're at that place, you think nobody's, and I mean, they worry about things like all they're going to do is lock me away and all the things that go through our head. And if they feel like it's okay and that someone's going to listen to them because that's not abnormal, then it gives them permission to then say, maybe I can deal with this. Maybe instead of feeling like they have to stuff it down. I believe it was, I believe it was depression that Daniel was dealing with. I just remember some times he would seem really solemn. And then other times he was really like an eight year old, you know, just cuddly and huggy, but he had not lived with us for seven 
eight years at the time. I guess it was about six years. So it's not like we saw him all the time. And now, as you probably are aware, the younger people, they do more texting than calling. And that's one of the things, too, that I've dealt with. Had I heard his voice, would I have been able to tell something wasn't right? Right. Did he hide behind text messages? And even his friends that he was with almost every single day, they had no idea. They said, one of them told me, he said, I thought Daniel was happy. He was know, doing his job. And Melissa, I tried to blame it on what it was a money issue. He must have spent all of his money. He met, he must have a gambling problem. There must be some woman that he's all of that, but none of that was, I mean, to this day, no, there's been no woman produced. No one has come forth. Money was not an issue because no one's we, come to collect, in other words. Nobody's right? come collect. Right. And the fellas did not know about anything. And they told it, you know, he they would have known. And he had money. I mean, he had money, no credit card, no loans. So he had money. You know, he had money at his disposal. So all I can account it to, attribute it to, is depression. Why the depression? I don't know. I don't know. The the, the internal <coughs> chatter that goes on in the mind of someone who becomes suicidal is something that's really hard for those of us to understand that haven't had that happen. And so I would say, I don't understand how anybody could ever take their life. I don't understand how you could ever be so sad that you would not want to live. Like, and it just seems that it's interesting, the vanity that we live in when we think something like that, or we say, and I know I've heard you say this before too, in another um, episode that we even maybe were the person before that would say, it's such a selfish gesture. Unfortunately, until something like that happens to somebody, a lot of us don't have the tools to realize that even a healthy mind can have something happen to it that isn't normal. Think about the times that we've had things physically happen to us, Lynn, where, I mean, I had my knees start hurting out of the blue. And for months, <laughs> I felt like I wasn't going to be able to walk. This was just last year. Right. I did find out it was because of a medication I had started taking them, mm. that it was causing, but I didn't, at first, I didn't even think it was a medic. It just seemed like I all of a sudden had arthritis or something <laughs> in my knees, or I thought I injured them. So when something like that happens, we, we start that whole, we go to the doctor, we have x-rays, we do whatever. When our thinking changes, we don't have the tools and the permission within the society we live in. Yes to be able to say something's wrong because I'm thinking things I haven't normally thought because you don't want someone to go, well, stop it. Or, Oh, you, yeah. Just say one up. of those what dumb things. You're like, why would you be sad? You don't have anything <laughs> mm-hmm. to want for, especially people mm-hmm. that don't have a history of it. They think, what am I going to go tell somebody I, I'm thinking of ending my life? And they're going to say, what in the world are you thinking? Don't, they're just going to call them crazy. Yeah. yeah. You just, yeah, all the things. Yeah. And we just have to step away from it. And so that yes, you and I talked about it briefly before we started recording. That's why 
you're telling your story. That's why you're doing some of the, which I want to segue into the where you are now and where you're headed. But that's why I have the conversations because it isn't just to destigmatize suicide loss and mental health illnesses. It's also to destigmatize grief in general because grief in our society is treated like something that's supposed to be one and done. You, you, you wear your black, you have the funeral, you grieve, quote unquote, and then you're done grieving, right? Yeah, you get over it. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. just, have yeah. you, haven't you moved on yet? Like, aren't you done with that? <laughs> and, you know, you do. You want to look at somebody and say, let me know when you're done with that child of yours. <laughs> Pick one. Right. Let me know when you're done right. with them and I'll be done right. with mine. Yes. And so it's, I think it's so complex, but if we just sit back and let the status quo be, what's happened right now is a dangerous thing. And your son's a part of it. My son's a part of it. We are in a society now where increasingly suicide has become a possibility. Right. And that you're right. And that is why, again, we are doing what we are doing talking about it, telling our ugly, I call it my unexplainable, complicated, heartbreaking, gut-wrenching story. If that will help somebody else not to be here or to know that they are not here alone, then I'll keep telling it until my breath leaves my body. Right. And we, I believe, I know I, and I believe you as well, know that sometimes it's not going to be well received. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes we will have to be very transparent about some things, but if, because we know the pain, we know the magnitude of the pain, the emotional and sometimes the physical pain that we are willing to take that risk. We're willing to take that chance. And so here we are. Here we are. You know, before we go into what you feel led to do from this loss and and how you're finding power in your pain, if you don't mind talking a little bit about, because I think it's a unique space that a lot of grievers can relate to. And that is that this was you and your husband, Keith's only child. Correct. And grieving is hard for one person. Grieving as a couple is a whole nother dance. And I ask this because I do have enough insight after listening to another one of your interviews to know that you have, you know, what I consider a a very nice, strong story to tell about how you and your husband have handled this in your marriage. So it seems like you and Keith are doing a very good job from the story I heard you tell before. Would you agree? And do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Not at all. I believe and I believe he would agree with me that we do have a good relationship overall. And I will say that since Daniel's death, I understand how something like that can cause or a relationship, sometimes a good relationship, the, the demise of a good relationship, because you have to work at it. You have to give each other grace. You have to um, try to understand, but not put on the other person how you're feeling. For instance, we (laughs) sometimes I think we try to protect each other. And I've had to say to him, 
if you're having a rough day or you're having some thoughts or you want to say something, don't you don't have to try to protect me. Just say it. Almost like that. I don't want to upset you if you're having a great day. No, say it. We have each other. That's all we have as far as our nucleus family. We have each other. We have extended family. Most of them do not talk about Daniel. They loved him, but they don't talk about him, I believe, because of the way he died. And so we check in with each other regularly. We give each other space. We both, not together, but we both went through support uh, support group, survivors of suicide law support groups. We both um, have or had our own therapist. We talk about what happened in those therapy sessions. Uh, we talk about Daniel. So it helps us to um, just be open with each other. And, and, and we often say, again, we understand how such a tragedy could divide. I, and then when I talk to other persons who have both biological parents available, how different they are. I have some acquaintances who said, you know, he thinks that I'm just crazy. He don't wonders why I'm still dealing with this or the other children wonders how. And I'm just so grateful and so thankful. That's not my story. Yeah. So, yeah, it's so, yes, we manage it and we support each other. Well, I just think it's powerful. When I heard you tell that story to the other gal on her podcast, I thought it was just such a powerful testament to your strength as individuals, but also your strength as a couple that you're willing to be supportive on the level that you are. And I feel like it's just really important to hear people say what they do when they're successful at something like this, because you're not saying it's easy. It's hard like the whole thing is, but like I say, hard things are hard. And sometimes we have to be willing to get in there and tackle it. And it, it's really powerful to hear you say that do you do your separate things in order to be able to be strong together. But I love that you're willing to say, we don't, we don't hide behind it when something is bad or something right. you've had a bad day that you have to be willing to to put it out there. You have to be willing to say, this is what's wrong with me right now and bear each other's burden even, or at least be there to support the other person. So one other thing I would like to add is, and I'm sharing this because I said it to a grieving mom, not of suicide loss, but a mom who lost their daughter, her daughter. She said that after a few months, her husband said to her, what's going on now? Why are you seeming like you've regressed? Initially, you were seeming like you were okay. And I said to her, I said, give him some grace. Because initially, she went into, got to fix this, got to do this, got to take care of this, got to get service done. Might have had other kids, might have had Yeah, all of this stuff. And then it's two months later, and now she's got time for herself. And so he doesn't understand. And I just said to her, give him some grace. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know 
how to handle it. And even in this particular case, he was is not the biological father to the person that passed away. And but just so I say to maybe some other ladies who are listening, if you're in similar situations, that one, because men usually handle their feelings way different from us, give them some grace. And two, they can't read minds. They are Mm -hmm. not mind readers. And I've had to come to the knowledge of that. I'm still working on that. He cannot read my mind. He may not know what's going on. So I just have to say, Daniel is really heavy on me today. or He is wearing me out today. He knows what that means. Right, right. That I'm having a hard day. But yeah, sometimes just things like that, that helpful. And she was very thankful to me for saying that because then it resonated that, oh, okay, he's just not being mean. He just doesn't know. What you showed him was different in the beginning from what he's seeing now. Right. Well, and that's good, solid marriage advice in general. I know that you probably know that, but it is (laughs) because I think that it's where men are guilty of certain things for sure. Let's make sure we cast a stone into our camp and say, we're definitely guilty of things. And one of those things a lot of times women are guilty of is expecting men to read our mind or to read our heart, right? And it's a responsibility as a human being to tell people what's going on with us to tell them how we expect to be treated or vice versa, to hope they're going to say, and for them to assume when maybe you were fine, I air quote that maybe you were fine (laughs) yesterday, that all of a sudden they're going to know today it's because your grief is just extra heavy today. You have to be able to say to them, and this is what's going on right now. So I either need you to give me some space or I need you to listen, or do you have time to listen to me? Cause I'm extra heavy right now. I really need to get some of this off me. And boy, the power of being able to have that kind of communication with your partner or your best friend or whoever the inner circle of people that you Mm -hmm. rely on is invaluable because it means they're able to be a better support to you, which that's the important part of it too, is we need people to be there to support us. They cannot carry it for us. Right. And I am grateful again and thankful that I have a few people like that outside of They have no idea, like you and I kind of know, they have no idea, but they are willing to support. They are willing to take the good days with the bad. They are willing to take the tears on their shoulder, whatever it takes. They are willing to learn how to support. So I say to anyone who may be listening to this podcast, if you are a supporter, Thank you for supporting those of us who yeah. who lean on you and need you to be there for us. Yeah. And I think hopefully those people don't ever need us in the same capacity, yes. but I will tell you that if they do, they probably know where they're going to be able to turn for that support, yes. right? Because yes. that's probably part of the reason they're, they're able to be there too, is they probably have a capacity to understand from their own broken heart of some sort. So Yeah. So I know that as part of your journey, this year will be three years for you, right? So you're still very early in your grief, but you're not quite as fresh. It's not quite as sharp. And with some of that sharpness going away, one of the paths that I know you've gone down is that of becoming certified as a, oh my gosh, I don't have it in front of me right grief now. Grief coach. Grief, well, grief coach, but you got certified from grief to, to gratitude, right? A grief to gratitude, grief coach. 
And I know you're not currently practicing, practicing. using that, but that you have plans at some point to continue forward in not only telling your story, but hoping to help others. Tell me exactly what that looks like for you. And if you even know exactly what your plans are right now, and other grievers understand that, like, I don't exactly know right now, but (laughs) I'm working on it. But I, I think that the fact that you've done that speaks to that you feel a calling of sorts to do something because this isn't exactly your background. You don't have a therapy background. No, not at all. I know you are a personal protection coach. So you taught people to be safe, right? So you have a coaching background, but this is obviously a very different calling. So speak to that a little bit, if you would, Lynn. Sure, I would. Thank you, Melissa. The, I preface that with saying early on, seven months after Daniel's death, the I made a decision that I am not, and as ugly as this may sound, I'm not going to die with my child. I'm choosing to live with the grief, with the all of the stuff that comes along with it. But I, it's too heavy for me talking about some of the stuff that we've already talked about. It's just too heavy for me to carry day in and day out. I've got to find a way to to move forward with it. Some days it gets me, that knocks me down. Other days I knock it down. Other days we just respect each other. (laughs) But with that being said, I said, okay, I am still going to live and lead a meaningful and impactful life. And I figured out some ways to do that. At the same time, I do not believe that I'm the only one. And I know that I'm not the only one that feels the same way. I believe that there are other persons that say, I can't change that, but I still want to make a difference. I still want to live my life. So that is what my coaching from grief to gratitude looks like and will look like. What I plan for it to be is for that. It'll probably be mostly women, but for that adult woman who has experienced the loss of a child and others, but my focus would be on children to say, hey, yes, this happened. I can't uh, undo it. I can't control what other people think about me, say about me, say about my child, but this is what I can do. I can give the what I can't less energy and I can ignite that fire within me to help to keep their memory alive, to help to tell my story for two reasons, in hopes that no one else will ever have to join this club, air quotes, and that those who are part of the club know that they are not by themselves, that they, and it's okay. It is okay to still live out your life with that. Living your meaningful, impactful life does not mean you've forgotten your child. It does not mean that you've forgotten your loved one. It just means that you are living, moving forward with the loss. And so that is what my intention is for the coaching. I just, I love that because it aligns so much with 
why I do what I do, because I tell people, I teach what a part of what I practice, what I preach, which is I teach people that you're going to learn to live alongside of this. You're not going to move past it. It's not going to stay behind and you move forward. You learn to live alongside of this. It becomes a part of who you are. Definitely. And I kind of think of it too, is one of the things that we talked about in training some months ago was the, the flat tire scenario. The flat tire, if a flat tire happens, the flat tire has happened. If you choose to do nothing with it, then you just have a flat tire on your vehicle. But you can choose to have the flat tire fixed so that you can continue on. And so that's what the flat tire happened. Boom. I, I know it happened. I saw evidence of it, but I can't take the tire back to the pre-flat condition, meaning I can't undo the ugly, but I can fix that tire. I can patch that tire and I can continue on my journey, taking with me the memories. I can't make new memories with Daniel, but I can always have the memories with me. I can't make uh, take have new adventures with him, which is something that he and I love to do. Having we call our outings adventures. I cannot make any new adventures with him, but the memory of the adventures I always have with me. So, and then my helping others is another way that I take care of myself. It's a part of my healing because, again, I don't believe that. This is just for me to hold on to because um, there's an audience of us waiting. We need to know that we have sisters and brothers that we can link arms with. We may not see eye to eye, but we know at the end of the day, we have an idea of how we feel. We have an idea of how each other feels. We may not choose to handle it the same. But at the end of the day, we have an idea. And that unfortunate commonality that we have is that we experienced the death of a child and more readily the suicide death of a child. I call my, one of the things that I do is called Tea Time Chats. And I call it Tea Time Chats because I'm an avid tea drinker. I enjoy a cup of tea with a friend or, or a colleague or someone that I just met, what I never dreamt of was having a cup of tea and a chat with anyone about my son's death. But here I am. And oh yeah, that's, I, I, I that's love a part the, of my story. I love the tea time chat. I just love it. It's so personal. And you're right. There's a power in coming together, I think in any community, that's just a thing, but it's, there's something about those of us that have lost parents, not just moms to a child to suicide that causes us to need each other in a way that we probably, we couldn't have, thankfully we couldn't have comprehended before. I mean, I have people say things to me, like, I just can't, I can't comprehend how you're doing this. And I think to myself, well, that's good. 
I sometimes I say, to- I say out loud sometimes is I wouldn't want you to feel this way. And I give yeah. them permission when they say, I just don't know what to say. I say, I wouldn't have known what to say either. The best thing you can do is just tell me you're here for me or ask yes. me to talk about Alex or things like that, or just say, this must be really difficult. Acknowledgement and just being willing to be with somebody in their pain mm-hmm. is the biggest thing somebody can do for somebody. If someone's listening and thinks the same thing, if I just don't know what to do or so what to say, because I don't want to make it worse or I don't want to make them sad. And you and I have talked about that. There isn't any making this worse. (laughs) There isn't a worse. The worst has happened and we We have the worst. (laughs) Right. And you're not going to make us sad because, well, on some level, the sad, I tell people sadness lives right alongside of my happiness. Now I I still feel joy. I've learned to feel joy again. I've learned to be happy and all those things, but it's still always going to live next to sadness. And for people that are listening, and I don't know if you've, you've seen this movie, grandchildren help with this kind of thing, but I've seen the Pixar movie called Inside Out and- Mm it's a movie about our feelings. It's, it's a Pixar movie. So like a toy story or something uh-huh. but it has the characters in it that are, it shows them inside the mind of the little girl. And it also shows them inside the mind of the parents in them in the movie. <laughs> and they have sadness, joy, happiness, disgust. And I can't remember the other one right now. Fear, maybe fear. <laughs> sadness and joy are the two main characters and the, the moral of the story I'm not, it's, it's an old movie, not old, but you know, old enough that I'm, I'm not sorry. I'm not ruining the plot for anyone, but the end of the moral of the story is sadness and joy cannot live without each other. One doesn't Mm. exist without the other. And that's the truth. We know it like no other. Right. Right. (laughs) Because ours literally live alongside of each other. We can't dismiss sadness from the room anymore because on some level there's a, a sadness to us that is just there and I'm okay with it. You know, yeah. it's, 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 I don't like it. I wish it was, but it is what it is. I read something last night in my support group because it came across my desk yesterday. There's a website, a psychological website called the mighty. Mm. And it, they had an article yesterday called the unique solidarity among suicide loss survivors. And I thought, yes, that's, that's it's, so, it's so true. There is a unique solidarity among suicide loss survivors. And that's why you and I are doing this so that people yes. know they're not alone and that they know they can do it. And they know, I tell people, you're never going to fix this. No, there's not ever going to be anything about what happened. That's going to be better. And if but anyone you, ever, but you are going to be okay. There's a and difference, if anyone right? ever tries to fix you, run because right. you're run not fast. broken. <laughs> you may be broken hearted, but you're not broken. Right. So nobody can fix you. You don't need to be fixed. You don't need to be fixed. You're not broken hearted, maybe, but not broken. So whether right. it's a therapist, whether it's a counselor, whether it's a family member, whomever it is, if they want to fix you, if they want to help you get over it, run. The other yeah, way. <laughs> if the, yeah, if they want you to work the stages because this is going to make it better. One other thing I would like to share with our listeners is <clears throat> there may be times that you feel like you're making progress, you're progressing along well, and then boom, all of a sudden you feel like you're regressing. Don't feel bad about that. 
because that may happen. Right. Different things trigger at different times. And I've, I've had to learn that because of this, I felt like I was, okay, I can handle this. I can breathe. I can talk about this. The very same thing, I could have a similar conversation with somebody like you and I are having today, and I'm okay. Tomorrow, I may be a crying, snotty-nosed mess. But so don't ever feel like just because you feel like you've gone backwards, it's just part of the process. Yeah, it is part of it. It, Grief is not linear is so true. And we were taught for a long time that it was that if you just progress through these steps, the whole stages of grief. And that's for anyone that's listening that still thinks that exists. I mean, we've long dispelled poor Elizabeth Kubler-Ross because her study was taken out of her own context. Like we took those stages from some work she did and studies she did and became, oh, look at, she says there are these stages of grief. And that wasn't what she set out to do. And so modern science, modern psychological science has dispelled, thankfully, that we can work through these stages and then we'll be okay. We now recognize that grief is not linear. And depending on the depth and, and, and severity of the loss, the trauma of the loss, me and who the person was in your life, you may live with this grief forever, but it doesn't mean what you said. It's so much power in you saying it doesn't mean we can't go on to live an impactful, dynamic, happy, healthy life alongside of the worst thing that ever happened to us because we can. And especially when it comes to like, as Alex's mom, in a good moment, because I can say that in a good moment, I'm not a puddle on the floor at this moment, but I <laughs> might be tomorrow, just like you. But in a good moment, I can say it's as much my job to care for him now as it was when he was alive. And it is now my job to shine his light into this world because he physically can't do it anymore. Right? Exactly. And that's one of the hard, the things that was hard for me. For probably the first year, I refused to say suicide. Even. Or died? Did you have a hard time with uh, died? 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 I got better with that than I would say presumably suicide, even though I saw the Emmys report, all of that, everything that pointed in that direction, but there was no note left, anything like that. Nothing right. was found. Which so. there isn't very often. No, I mean, people yeah. think there's always a note. No, there's no, hardly ever a note. No. And honest. I would say, presumably, some, somehow that was me protecting my child. I didn't want anybody to think bad of him. I didn't want anybody to think he would do that. Which and now then you I got to, perpetuates the stigma, right? right? Right, right. And then along with my individual therapist, I realized, okay, people are going to think what they want to think. They're going to say what they want to say. And at the end of the day, whether you say presumably or not, he's still gone. Mm -hmm. He's still gone. Yeah. Yeah. But those are some of the things that we work through. We, those things we work through, not through the grief, but through those things that we we work through with yeah. each other without whether it's with our professional friends or with our, our 
grief buddies. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And we learn to, we we definitely acquire tools along the way that help us better cope with it. I, I often say the waves are not any less when they come, but I'm so much better equipped to deal with them than I was in the beginning right? Mm-hmm. I wear more rain gear now. I have a more sturdy boat. I mean, it, exactly. still, it still stinks and I'm still paddling sometimes, but I'm exactly. better equipped than I was in the beginning. I'm so thankful for this conversation. I'm so thankful that our paths crossed. It goes without saying that I wish we didn't have a reason for our paths to cross, but we do. And you know, I don't believe there are accidents in the people that cross my paths. And I'm just thankful that you're one of those people, Lynn. Thank you. And I, likewise, I so appreciate you for your the work that you're doing and the people that you're reaching and for you welcoming me into your space. Well, I'm right back at you. You've allowed me into your space and your life and shared your story with me. And it's my honor and privilege to have been able to be able to have a platform to share that because it's going to matter. It matters to me. It matters to you that you shared your story, but it's going to matter to somebody else as well. And it's so brave of you. I'm so thankful that you were um, willing to do that. And is there, if you can leave anybody with telling them where they can reach out to you, I know I'll put everything in the show notes. So if somebody wanted to connect with you, how could they do that? Right now, the best way to connect with me is through email, which is Lynn, dot B as in Brooks dot Lewis, L-E-W-I-S at live, L-I-V-E dot com. I am on Facebook as Lynn Lewis and I am on Instagram as I think it's 7778, but my picture does pop up. So that's the best places to reach me as of yet. Well, I will put links to those in the show notes so people don't have to remember them and they can just go and click the links yes. if they want to connect with you. And I will continue to follow you and all of the great work that you're doing in this um, area as well. I'm sure it's not the last time that our paths will cross. And, you know, I always just feel like I've added someone to my network, to friends and my chain of grieving parents. And it's my pleasure. I'm I'm so thankful. If you were to offer one one last nugget of, of hope for somebody, do you do you have anything you'd like to offer? Be kind to yourself. Be very kind to yourself. And give yourself grace. I love that. That's a great way to end. Well, I appreciate it, Lynn, so much. Thank you again You're so welcome. very much. All right. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Grievers, it is my hope that from today, you will take that which serves you and simply leave the rest. If you connect with what you have heard, please subscribe to get notified of my new episodes every week, and please feel free to share it with others in the suicide loss community. If you are so led, I would also be honored if you would leave a review so that others might find us more easily. You can find me and all ways to connect with me at my Instagram, The Leftover Pieces. I want you to know that I know how very, very hard life is now. It's true that we will never be the same, but we are going to be okay. We will figure this out somehow, together, and we will keep our loved ones with us 
because there is no getting over or past grief, only learning to live more gracefully alongside it. Only through talk can we keep their memories alive, learn to live again, and bring some awareness so that less will suffer. Join me again next week, and we will keep the talk going. We will sign off today, as always, with the wise words of my Alex's favorite, Peter Pan. Never say goodbye, because goodbye means going away, and going away means forgetting. Grievers, no one here is forgetting. Talk soon.